This podcast is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, the Naval Institute has provided an open forum for thoughtful discussion of the most important issues facing the sea services and national security. Become a member today. Go to www.usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So show number three from Studio S here in Beach Hall. As we've said before, we're practicing good coronavirus protocols. We're more than six feet away from each other. Our staff, your staff, is practicing in accordance with the CEO's guidelines uh, basically, mostly work from home stuff, so the new normal. And uh, But as we've said before, our mission remains unchanged as our, our core audience is at sea, defending the nation, keeping the sea lanes open, Marines, sailors, Coast Guardsmen, worldwide. They are not returning because of the coronavirus. Um, so we intend to make our presentation and our periodicals and our products like the podcast unchanged and, and any of the impacts of coronavirus should be transparent in terms of what we're doing. That's our goal anyway. Yeah. In fact, we are upping the cadence of the podcast. It's a little hard to up the cadence of uh, proceedings in naval history, but those uh, continue. We just sent the April issue of proceedings off to the printer uh, just a couple of days ago, last Friday, and we're, uh, our uh, digital content managers are, are uh, loading that up to the website. It'll go live on the uh, 31st of March, uh, 1st of April timeframe. Uh, we're turned our attention now to Naval History Magazine. So most of the staff can work from home. We can uh, edit the magazine. We can do almost everything, the layout team, our design team, um, just about everything that we need to do to produce a magazine or two magazines can be done at home, can be done remotely. And we're using GoToMeeting uh, every morning at nine o'clock just to huddle the team uh, you know, check in. We can cross talk about articles and where we are on picking photos and publishing pieces and what goes on social media. It's all those kinds of things. So it's where we are blessed to be able to do 95% of our work from home. You know, so many Americans right now and so many people in the military uh, are not so blessed. Uh, you know, so it, it's a, it's a tough time, but we will continue to um, you know, not it's not business as usual at, at the Naval Institute, but it is we are open for business and we'll c- continue to, to push out uh, our products and uh, our news and our uh, books and our magazines, etc. Uh, speaking of news, just for a second, because we were talking about what the, the, the force is doing, USNI News had a report that uh, from yesterday uh, that the pe- Pentagon is preparing Navy hospital ships Mercy and Comfort cr- for coronavirus response. So that's an ep- you know uh, one of the things is you're looking to increase uh, the magnitude of the response. You know we've got the, the U.S. Navy has two hospital ships, and so one on each coast. You can stand those things up, um, and uh, that gives you some more capacity, more emergency capacity for beds, etc. I was talking to our CEO Pete Daly uh, yesterday afternoon. He said that he thought that those ships would be used uh, for ongoing uh, health care needs and probably not for coronavirus. So in other words, corona might be handled 
um, by civilian hospitals, but some capacity that's taken up for that could be um, shunted to the Navy hospital ships uh, to to manage the ongoing needs of the American public. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that that plays out. But uh, our USNI news team is following the impacts of this virus on the force, on the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, how they're reacting to it, how they're, um, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, the, the op-tempo requirements uh, and dealing with the reality of trying to keep a force up and ready and trained while at the same time uh, trying to do social distancing, trying to make sure that this uh, virus does not spread throughout the force. Well, the Navy has proved it's here to help before in times of national crisis, hurricanes, Kearsarge and some other amphibs were uh, were used to supplement the efforts there of, of DHS and other uh, first responders. Uh, so this is an effective uh, gesture, uh, if you will, and we'll see how it's used. That is interesting that Pete points out that it's going to be used for more routine stuff, um, but uh, uh, great gesture all the same. All right, so joining us, our, our guest today is a uh, surface warfare lieutenant commander, U.S. Navy lieutenant commander, uh, Alyssa Armstrong, who we can hear a little bit of noise in the background, so I think she is on a ship right now. Um, uh, oh, so, unfortunately, I'm actually in a building, but oh, you're, you're they're in, doing construction right outside my room. <laughs> Got it. Got it. So that sounds a little bit like Beach Hall maybe two years yes. ago when we had some construction going on on or the rooftop. Right now with the or right now at the other end center. of the building, our, yeah. our conference center. So uh, Lieutenant Commander Armstrong, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, good afternoon and uh, thank you for having me. So your uh, recent article was called An Ode to Boomers from a Grumpy Millennial. So you are a self-identified millennial surface warfare officer. Uh, tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write this article. Uh, one of the reasons I, I was prompted to write the article was just, again, the ongoing discussion and what I see is kind of a divisive disc divisive discussion among the, the folks in the Navy. As the Navy is a overall young force, uh, the majority of our sailors are somewhere between in their 20s, and they're only getting younger each year. And uh, oftentimes you kind of hear the derision that's given from millennials to towards boomers or towards the older generations. And you also hear on the exchange side from the older generation to the, the younger sailors as they're coming in. What I want to make clear is I kind of felt that I was in a unique position where I'm technically a millennial. So, you know, usually the millennials are defined as folks who are born between the years of 1981 and 1996. I am on the older side of the millennials. But on the other flip side of that, I've also been fortunate to be in a position of leadership where I've had I've led a, lot, led a lot of sailors who are millennials, but also it puts me in a position of working pretty closely with folks who are in the older generation from my previous captains and exos to some of the other senior department heads on board the ship I currently serve with. And I found myself in an informal situation almost translating between two two folks who have the same mission and same mindset, same end goal in mind, but maybe how they want to communicate that to each other doesn't always come across well. And I've that I want to make, for example, take some of the derision that has been formerly exhibited by millennials towards the old generation and kind of remind them that even if there's advice that you've been you've received that you do not understand at the, understand at the time, uh, it, sometimes it just takes a little bit of years in order to kind of make sure that that advice makes sense. Well, as a boomer, I fully appreciate the sentiment of your article. But the other thing I'm reminded as we're talking about the, the year groups that, if you will, that define each one of these generations – that boomers now are 
like three and four stars, right? Boomers are not in command now. We're actually starting to get where Gen X is actually aged out of 05 command and we're starting to get millennials like, you know, like you very soon will be in, in an 05 position. Um, and so I think time goes by pretty fast, um, no doubt. But let's talk about some of the things that you've, you've taken some sayings that, that your boomer skippers used to use and, and the lessons that you've derived from them. Let's go over a few of those. What's the first one that comes to mind? Oh, my favorite one is probably comes from my first, uh, my first CEO, and his was really, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. Uh, he was, would say this in so many, so many responses in so many ways, and it reminds me that no matter what the problem is, there is a myriad of solutions in order to how you want to address that. And really, if you're counting on one single person to come up with the one solution for that situation, that is beyond the bandwidth of a single person to do. So his response to that was, you know, he would say there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. And it wasn't just because he wanted you to come up with a solution, which he did, because he had a lot of other things he wanted to think about. But he also kind of recognized, too, that he may not be in the best position to answer what is the best solution. He may not have all the information at hand. But when you give that as a response to, you know, someone who's carrying out tasking for you, you have to keep in mind that you have to you have to make clear to the person you're tasking what is their limitation, you know, what's the left and right field that they can't they can't go in, or what are your expectations, what what is non negotiable in the solution that they come up with. But other than that, it's up to them to come up with the solution and it enforces creativity and it does empowerment of the subordinates. And it lessens a lot of the leadership burden on the person who's doing the tasking because you don't have to try to do it as a micromanagement. But between the two, it also requires a lot of trust. There's plenty of times I've given, given tasking to someone and just tell them, tell them this is the end state that I want. And as I watch them go through the tasking, it's very much human nature to say, that's not the way I would do it. <laughs> Why are they doing it like that? But... In order for this to work successfully, you have to let go of that and let go, be humble enough to say your way that you might do it may not be the best way. And even if you think it's the best way, you telling someone that's the way they should do it and micromanaging every step of the process also takes away the opportunity for the junior person to learn how to do it and to gain that experience along the way. The second boomer phrase that you list in your article is, it is what it is. So the CEO who said this, this is my second CEO, and I can say that immediately uh, he and I did not necessarily get along get along right off the bat. Uh, he he relieved my first CEO. My first CEO is probably to this day one of my favorite captains I've ever had. Uh, the second CEO, he would often say, "It is what it is," and to me, I at the time I found this incredibly frustrating. Um, as I think any young person in general who is very, starts off very idealistic and you, and for good, for good, you really want to change the world and you want to change everything that's wrong with it and you want to change everything that you see, every injustice, every inefficient process. I really want to do this and try that and sometimes situations would come up and the captain would respond with, it is what it is. And I would think, why are you not expending the energy to correct that? Why are you not telling him, telling your boss that that's a terrible idea and we shouldn't do it that way? And then it took many, many years for me to realize that, that wasn't saying that you shouldn't shouldn't try to change the world. It's just the same. It's him saying you should stop and choose your battles that you're fighting, and that not every battle is worth the energy to expend to fight it, uh, and that 
you know, at the end of the day, we as human beings have a very finite amount of what we control, and that is time and energy for each specific person. And so if I think that the color of the pen should be different, is that really worth it? Or is it worth me to put my time and energy into making a change that's going to have a much wider effect on my sailors for the positive? Yeah, the difference between that statement, that cliche being either wisdom or a cop-out, it's kind of like I'm reminded of, of Stoicism and Epictetus's writings, right? So knowing the difference between things you can and cannot change. Um, so that's that's been your your takeaway, Alyssa. Is ultimately, as you as you simmered on that saying, what you believe the skipper was sort of saying is figure out the difference between things you can and can't affect. And if it's something you can't affect, then accept that it is what it is. Exactly. So, what was an example, or maybe two examples, of things that, uh, as a department head on a on a ship, that you thought, well. This is this is something that is worth changing, or maybe another one that you said, yeah, this is one where I'm not going to expend the time and effort because it really is just what it is. One of the things that I thought that was definitely worth changing was just, uh, for example, how we did a ranking board for our sailors. Uh, there were a couple. Every ship has the has to at some point could be in a ranking board, whether it is for an award, whether it's for evals, etc. And the process that ships do it varies from ship to ship. There are some ships who I think have a very clear process, and they have metrics, and they have grade sheets that they use. Um, I went to one ship that had that did have that actually for like a sailor year board had metrics and grade sheets, and the, they tried to weight weight things. But at the same time, you looked at the process and thought like this needs to change a little bit too because where we how we weight the metrics in the sheet doesn't necessarily reflect the way that we actually value our sailors and how to make that match and to formalize that. And so looking at the processes that's on on something about sailors' ranking, because that is going to have an overall effect about where they fall in the command, how they break out in evals, how which affects their ability, obviously, for promotion as well as for uh, special programs that they may be involved in. Clearing that, making it a clear process of some sort and then being also able to reevaluate the process as make sure that it actually holds to what you want to, to execute was a big deal. Um, you know, it's better than just throwing a bunch of people in the room and saying with no clear guidance how which sailor was the number one. And that often I've seen that happen on another ship where that ended up with whoever was the most outspoken would end up with that sail- with the sailor that they were endorsing as the number one, whether that was fair or not. So the metric having introducing some sort of metric in a grade sheet was beneficial for that and that was definitely I thought a change worth doing. Uh, some of the changes that I that I found uh, talking to my junior sailors or talking to my junior officers, and they tell me, well, we think we think we should change the way that, for example, um, slating happens for officers, and we need to change the way that bills are being filled. It's like, that's that's a good point. You know, there may be some mismatch between the way the bills are being filled on the ships um, and, you know, the, the struggle that you're experiencing individually, but what the amount of the amount of change that they wanted to see was obviously not something that was going to happen in the time frame that they wanted it to happen in, you know, specifically in their individual case of I want to do this <laughs> in order for my next slating. Uh and that was definitely one of those moments of this is this is the situation as is and you're going to have to learn to work within the boundaries of the current situation. So for the next one you you say that one of your COs used to yell at you when you would suggest this and the saying is, I hate change. Well, what's the background of that? 
Oh, it's funny, Ed. So he, when I say he yelled at me, this is this is one of those like a good-natured yell. It's not like I a chew out yell, uh, but this is a this is a recent yell. He was he was he was previously enlisted, so he had more you know more sea time, more experience, a little little older than the most COs uh, currently, and his he would yell at me, I hate change, and that was the what that was or what that triggered for me was that I had to be able to explain the change I wanted. I explained why it made sense to make change. It wasn't just for change for change's sake. You know, I didn't want to change something just because I wanted to be known that I made this improvement that wasn't really an improvement. But I had to explain and be prepared to justify it. And oftentimes you say, you know, CSO, you know how I feel about change. And I said, yes, sir, I know you hate change. And then I would pause and go, but change is good for you too. And then we would explain about, I talk about why it needs to be changed. One of your other lessons is um, this quote, never fall in love with the plan, love the planning process. You said it came from one of your exos and he was not a Marine. <laughs> he was not a Marine. Surprisingly, uh, as I've discovered how much Marines love the planning process. Uh, this, however, this exo, his experience that kind of brought him to the saying was he had come from a staff and he were in the operations the operations field and had often had to come up with a plan and often come up with, you know, different course of actions as it planned or didn't pan out. And I used to, he, we, he used to tell me this all the time, and I struggled with this because in order to not fall in love with the plan, the biggest issue is you have to be able to divorce yourself from the plan. So when the plan changes, you have to understand it's not an impact or not a direct reflection on you or your ability Oftentimes, the plan is required to change due to forces that you cannot control or you could not in any state or form have been able to even, you know, imagine. For example, all those folks right now who are canceling every event in accordance to the, co- the coronavirus concerns, there was probably no one six months ago who thought about a potential pandemic affecting their ability to execute plans. But that doesn't necessarily change the fact that when they change the plan, that they felt a little bit of their own self connected to it and have to feel a little sad that the plan has to change. And in retrospect, or, you know, in contrast, if you enjoy the planning process, if we were all Marines and we went through our planning our planning courses from the entirety of our career, and you actually thoroughly enjoy that planning process, every change you see or every every variable that changes, you have an, you see it's an opportunity to re-demonstrate and re-engage those lines of communication and come up with a new plan that is flexible, that works towards your current situation. One of the sayings that I think taps into the generational differences maybe more than any of the others is does your chain of command know and i've i've seen this most acutely in my post navy life when working with millennials at a at a, a website a tech company and tech companies especially startups prize themselves on flat organizations where you don't have to ask permission to do everything just do it before leaning um, i always executed even as a naval officer it's easier to ask you know, beg forgiveness and ask permission. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. What about that question, this infinitive question, does your chain of command know both tweaks you and and in time has seemed like sound guidance? So this is one of those items that at first, like even, I will say even at the beginning of my tour on board Boxer, I, I pride myself on how pretty flat organization. I have an open door policy where junior sailors, sailors, sailors can come in and we can talk about anything, anything, personal concerns that are bothering them, things that they're doing on their day. And 
So I was very much a fan of the flat, flat infrastructure, and I like the flat infrastructure for several reasons. I think that you get some of the most accurate information sometimes from going to the lowest level. I think that it produces a lot of trust between the multiple levels, and I think that there's a lot of problems that come that I hear that I either a I may not even think of it as a problem. I talk to the junior the junior sailors. Or B, they have they come up with some really creative solutions that just based on their perspective they're able to, you know, divine a solution that I may not have seen. But I also found like over the course of the course of the tour that that is definitely a double edged sword. And so I would often ask, does your chain of command know? Because what ended up happening was it ended up again, we talk I talk about the time and energy, right? That's a finite amount of resources that we each individual has. And that if I let myself have no filter in place you know, where it was just coming from E3, E4 directly to me as the department head, that I would get overwhelmed with information, overwhelmed with status updates, overwhelmed with, you know, everything else. And I've realized that over, over the course of the tour that that chain command is there also as a filtration device. They don't, they're not necessarily there to filter out just bad information, but they're also there to filter out and prioritize information, you know, in the department head's mind, what is the stuff that I need to actually spend my time and energy on? And there's plenty of things that they will be able to bring to my attention that I need to spend time and energy of. And there's plenty of issues that the junior sailor may feel, but people along within the chain command are also able to address them all the way. And so in some ways, that gets a lot more response time. So I kind of remind folks, too, that the does your chain command know it's not just because I'm there to act, they're there to act as roadblocks, but they're there to, they're also empowered to make a lot of the changes they may be asking for me directly. And one other big thing, too, is one of the, one of the downsides of the flat, the flat hierarchy or flight infrastructure you have in organizations is that you lose the formality between the different levels, which means that you kind of lose that social script. And the one pro thing about being in the military with our very hierarchical structures, we know exactly how to, when you have two people walk in the room, there's rank associated. You know exactly the social script, who, who is senior to who, you know, who has, who could be, who has control of the situation, et cetera. Um, when you have a flat infrastructure that is not there necessarily as much, like the social script goes away. The amount of honors and customs and courtesies expected, it's not just because I want someone to come to attention and sit in attention until I let them sit, but it's so that when push comes to shove, if there's disagreement between the levels and I say this is how it is, that person knows that that is an order. They should not be there for discussion. Um, and I think that when you have the flat hierarchy, there may be more collaboration, but there's also more confusion when you have disagreement among the different groups. And that's one of the other things I, I like about having that much more hierarchical structure and making sure does your chain command know because they it also wants to emphasize too that there are multiple layers within our you know, our organization. Back to the start of this, your article you wrote it in sort of response to the the meme that was uh, that went viral called uh, "Okay Boomer," you know, roll your eyes and uh, you know stop Grandpa giving me all this advice and one of the boomer criticisms of millennials and younger generations is often that, you know, everybody gets a trophy. And uh, so you, the, the next uh, phrase that you talk about in your, in your commentary is winners don't get shout outs. So how does that apply? I drew this as a commentary on a, what turned out to be a fairly contentious uh, khaki meeting in our, in our shop as we were talking about just the upcoming awards, um, awards board. And I think what it does is it highlights kind of differences and what I what I think is positive reinforcement for people's people's work. On some level, the 
in general, and these are all very general. There are people, obviously, who break the stereotype. But I find that the younger folks, the younger people need more positive reinforcement um, to, that they're doing their job. And that, in some way, I, in personal, personal pain, has been fed by the idea or the culture where everybody gets trophies. But when we do that, you know, we end up diluting when someone actually deserves the award or when someone receives the award. And one of the things I joke with people nowadays is when we talk about under-tour awards, you know, for on a ship, if you're doing a pretty excellent job as a E5, E5, E6, you know, above, you're looking at leaving with a Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal. And I, and I tell my folks, and they say, hey, have you ever read a Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal write-up from, like, World War II? They're like, no, we haven't. I was like, well, you should go look because, A, there's not nearly as many from World War II as there are in this current Navy. And, B, what they do there is significantly better than what we do at our end of tour awards. But at the same time, you know, we talk, that talks about the dilution that we have with the award and, and almost the fact that we're giving everyone shout-outs, right? But I also don't want to damage or hurt my, my own sailor's chance of, of competing if they are getting ranked against sailors outside the command by a big Navy when it comes time in advance and for not having these awards. But there's a, a balance between the two. I don't want to give shout-outs for everybody because when you get the shout-out, when you finally get that shout-out from someone, or you finally get that good job from someone who doesn't normally give it out, uh, I think you you know it carries more weight. But at the same time, I, how do you balance that? How do you provide a positive reinforcement to people if, they, if that's what they need to do their job well, but not necessarily shout-outs? And that's where this part of this discussion I've had with some of the uh, some of the older people in our in our department. Um, we're ta- I'm talking like salty ward officers who were prior master chiefs, and I'm talking master chiefs. And we kind of had this discuss- discussion about, you know, I know you don't want to do shout outs, but maybe we what we need to do is we need to talk about positive reinforcement. So whether that is just getting the good jobs, maybe not from that person, maybe not from the captain, from different different levels, you know. Is there is there something getting the good job from the Bravo Zulu from the EMO well deserved? Does that make more sense, or from the department head, vice us pushing up to the XO or CO for those shout outs, or even just positive reinforcement throughout the day, asking them how they're doing, showing that we care and we're interested in their job, that kind of reinforces that they're doing a good job, uh, in order to kind of balance that need for positive reinforcement, but not make it so we feel so that everyone feels that we're diluting the shout outs. Yeah, and subordinates aren't stupid. I, I remember being at some awards formations where you could tell by the expression on the recipient's face that they were not exactly proud of, of why they were being recognized. Um, and I'm sure they felt like when they went back to their work center, they were going to get, you know, needled in okay, some right. way, you know. Yeah. So um, I think in some cases, this was just to make the CEO feel better um, or department or something, just go through the motions Um and that you, uh, you rightly point out that uh, command should guard against that. On the, however, and you mentioned balance. On the other end of the pole is the this next saying, which is "suck it up, Buttercup." So that that has garnered me a lot of um, a lot of feedback. I will say, <laughs> part of it is that we talk about the Navy and our desire to make our sailors more resilient, and the "suck it up, Buttercup" is kind of a a shorthand, maybe not as not as nice way to say that, but I'm I'm concerned sometimes when we go out of our way to make sure that our sailors are okay. Are they doing okay? Or are they? And what it does is it almost it de-empowers that sailor from being able to say, you know what, like life sucks. You know, de- being on deployment for seven months away from family, yes, that sucks. 
getting working extra long hours in order to prepare the ship for a major inspection, uh, yeah, that that sucks. But at the same time, I don't want sailors to fester and you know, kind of wallow in the terrible situation, and they just need to understand that ter- terrible situations happen, and or terrible mean like they're not they're not fun, right? They're not even like their lives are on the line necessarily, but they're not fun. And that they have to kind of figure out what they need to do to get themselves mentally out from that kind of cloud of depression and move on with their lives. I was just reading, uh, I, I scrolled down the article on our website and reading some of the comments, which were great. They were just really good feedback on your article from uh, a number of our commenters. Uh, one said, uh, you know, well done, nice read. I love to see people learning leadership, recognizing the path to achieve it. Another uh, who identified himself as a Gen Xer said, grumpy millennial, try try hanging out with an Xer, which I am. We'll teach you all about being grumpy. Uh, and then John Cordell, who was our author of the year last year, writes a lot on everything from readiness to uh, sleep and circadian rhythms. Uh, he wrote, as a boomer, this article made my day. The ending sentence is perfect itself. I hope that as I continue in the Navy, I'll never become so risk averse and so caught up in the small details that I forget that every once in a while you need to order flank speed and full rudder. Uh, so that, I'll, that, that brings us to your last point, which is uh, the, the phrase, drive it like you stole it. So tell us that story, which I think is just terrific. This was on my first ship as a destroyer, which was a destroyer based out of Hawaii. And I was the county officer, and we were doing workups for deployment. And they, we, you know, were getting to our rendezvous point, and we get there just in time to find out that the other ships that we were supposed to rendezvous, they changed the time of the exercise, and now we're basically at the rendezvous point like an hour early. Well, obviously, you don't want to leave the rendezvous point too far because you still have to rendezvous in an hour. But we're, we're sitting here just kind of tooling around, and I'm, we're looking around. We're looking at the captain trying to figure out what we want to do, and the captain this is my first CL, just looks at me and goes, Ensign Armstrong. He's like, drive it like you stole it. And I was like, drive it like I stole it? I, sir. And then I went all in the head flank. <laughs> and the boatman, I look over the boatswain in the watch, grabs the 1MC and says, all hands stand fast while the ship comes about. And I pass, you know, hard right rudder. And, you know, the, the ship starts healing over. The captain looks at me and goes, okay, okay maybe let's ease the rudder a little bit. <laughs> but he's laughing as we're doing that. And that... I still to this day I think about that CO and I think about him on that bridge wing with me, um, just really having laughing and showing me how much he enjoyed his job as being a commanding officer of a warship and how fast we were going and the water I mean we were going fast as the water was starting to come up a little bit over the forecastle and seeing that rooster tail behind the ship, you know, you have to remind yourselves at the end of the day it's so easy to get stuck in spreadsheets and powerpoints, particularly as officers and sometimes that's that's all it feels like we do, uh, but we are. Our job is inherently interesting, inherently very, very cool. Um, we are in charge of warships, and we're in charge of sailors. Who we take these kids straight from, you know, high school or straight from college or wherever they went came from, and we teach them skills that only one to two percent of the other U.S. U.S. citizens have. And we take them out to sea, and we take them how to fight, and we take these billion-dollar machines out to war, and they are super capable, and they are incredibly fun to drive when we are when we give ourselves the opportunity to do so. And like I said, driving fast is always way more fun than driving slow on the ship. Well, I'm reminded of the classic quote from Admiral Farragut, right, damn the torpedoes. It's usually misquoted as damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, 
But the exact quote, and I know this courtesy of the Google machine and Wikipedia, damn the torpedoes, four bells, Captain Drayton. Go ahead, you at full speed. That's the exact <laughs> quote. But I'm reminded of that. There's a place in our business for wanton aggressiveness, if you will. I mean, as you say, Alyssa, that's, that's just raw fun at times as well. And it, you take stock in the power of the profession at those times as well. I always try to remind folks that at the end of the day, you know, it's not that you're just coming to a floating office. You're coming to a, sh- a warship, and I don't want ever people to ever forget or divorce themselves from the fact that we are a warrior force, and we are trained to go to war and trained to battle, and that they have to keep that in the back of their minds. And everything that they do, you know, whatever they're doing, they ha- it's got to be pushed to how is this mission essential, why is this mission important, and how is this getting me better to execute my mission. So, Alyssa, you're in the heart of the envelope in your career, just finishing up as a department head, as a surface warfare officer, uh, you know, in the podcast and in proceedings the last couple of years, particularly 2017 was a really hard year for the surface force. We recently uh, interviewed the SWO boss, uh, Admiral Brown, and, and, you know, we were at um, the Surface Navy Association's event in, in Arlington in January, and the sense there was that uh, the surface warfare community is definitely you know, getting its um, confidence back and excitement back and, and it's um, just feeling, very much feeling what you just described, that, hey, we're, we're in an amazing profession. We are blessed to do some really incredible things and we've got, uh, you know, yeah, we've got challenges, but we also have incredible tools at our hands, uh, at our fingertips that we get to um, go to sea in, you know, every day. Um, so just curious, what kinds of things are you seeing from your perspective as a, as a mid-career uh, officer? Officer, a surface warfare officer, um, is manning improving? Is readiness improving? Esprit de corps improving? What's happening in the force? In terms of what we're I'm seeing on the waterfront, I will say that we do an excellent job at making sure that our ships that are going out to war or going out to deployment are fully manned, and that is both on the officer and the enlisted side of the house. Uh, what I have seen though is that you know where does that manning come from? And that manning sometimes comes from ships that are in the yard in long availabilities, and ships that are and staff work. Um, and as much as, as someone on board who's been on board ships the majority of my career, as much as I make fun of the staff, there is, there's a point to the staff. And uh, you do see kind of that undermanning affecting their ability to do that, lo- that big-scale planning to support the ships. In terms of history decor on how the ships, I will say that in general, if you go to a ship on deployment, that is when the ship is, ship is happiest because that is mo- when she is most in tune with her mission. Uh, it's very easy to see our direct connection to being on, you know, the tip of the spear when you're on deployment. It's much harder to see that when your when your ship is in a two, sometimes two to three year availability based on the avail package that's designated for your ship, and how to, you know, and there's definitely a struggle in terms of how you maintain that. Uh, the good news is that I think you'll the training has changed, and we've introduced a lot more requirements. Um, in the surface Navy in order to kind of go back to the basics and make sure that every person on board has the requisite skill set in order to handle uh, handle these billion-dollar war machines safely and to ensure that all of our sailors that we leave with come back home to their families. Um, so there's been the changes. You, I think that there was initially a lot of um, a lot more grumbling when the changes first happened in the fleet. Uh, you know, again, people hate change, but <laughs> inherently hate change. Uh, but that's starting to settle out more as I think there's been more definition to the changes and then more formalization to the process. Admiral Brown mentioned that ships are going to sea now CASREP-free. Is that your experience as well? So there is a huge 
licorice, and that comes not just from the swill boss, but you also see that too from the sleek manner. So chips are leaving here cancer-free. Uh, I will say that that is true to some extent. So that is definitely what the the most recent ships have left cancer-free. I will say even on USS Boxer, when we were right before deployment, we were providing daily updates to our fleet commander almost on our status of our CAS reps, and at the very bitter minimum, it goes up to your strike group commander. That is great. You see a lot of the increased support from the maintenance, the maintenance community in order to help you reach that. Uh, my concern, though, is that in some ways, because we emphasize it as CASA-free, you have a couple couple competing factors. One, you have to make sure your maintenance, maintenance community is actually able to answer that demand, uh, and that could be a lot of things. And that is not just technical knowledge, not just number of people who know the systems. And sometimes it's also, it has it highlighted some of our logistics issues. We have we have several systems on board ships that don't have a great supply chain. So as if it doesn't help me all day if I know what's wrong with wrong with my you know my gray box if I don't have the part that I need to fix the gray box because that the the company that made that part went out of business 20 years ago. Um, the other thing I've seen too a little bit is that because there's so much emphasis on zero cast reps, zero 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 cast reps, when something does break, because we're talking ships. Chips inevitably will will break. Uh, you see some more. You see more hesitation, especially the closer to the deployment. The ship exhibits in actually releasing a cast rep and actually announcing that they're broken because they there's a lot of external pressure to leave cast rep free. So it's I, I think that there's I like the fact that it is it is a great goal that we are setting for our ships and it's a great goal that we're setting to all the supporting activity for our ships to answer. I just think sometimes we want to make sure that we step back and we don't want to push this goal so hard that people feel the feel the urge to want to sweep issues underneath the rug. Well, that you bring up a great point and in, in a lesson that has been learned before as this ebbs and flows between um, safety and readiness. There's always that healthy tension at times, hopefully, and you'll be in a position before too long to, to make this call. Uh, COs are willing to sing out when there is a CAS rep and not hiding. This is kind of what got us in the problems, or is one factor that got us in the problems of the summer of 2017. And then the other part of that is the chain of command above the CO, whether it's the DESRON or up to the type commander, have got to not punish a skipper for for singing out. They cannot be viewed as punitive or prejudicial to career progression for having a, a CAS rep at a, at a time when the it's a short fuse issue. Because as you've just flagged tacitly, you tend to hesitate and then potentially that leads to going to sea with, with, a, with something that should have been attended to in port. And in turn, if these things start to cascade, you can hazard the crew. You know, you'll, you'll be in a position very soon to affect that, that difference, which is a segue to my final question, which is what's next for you? Uh, well, that's a good question. Right now, I am so I've been selected for XO float. I've been verbally slated to be XO on USS Calpens here at a San Diego cruiser. Uh, however, that being said, with the coronavirus, I'm waiting. There's been a huge amount of delay and backup going on in Millington with uh, the stop orders on stop movements on our orders, and so I'm waiting to see for my my orders to actually get generated. Well, congratulations on screening for EXO. That's a, a, a huge milestone and, and speaks highly of what you've done and also where you're going in your career. That's just fantastic. Thank you, Bill. 
So our guest this afternoon has been Lieutenant Commander Alyssa Armstrong, U.S. Navy. Her article in uh, uh, we published online uh, is called An Ode to Boomers from a Grumpy Millennial. So you can Google that and or uh, if you go to our website, usni.org, and uh, open up the search window, uh, search for An Ode to Boomers, and it'll come up. Uh, Alyssa, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for writing for Proceedings, and thanks for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Bill, and thanks again as well, Ward. Welcome. Congratulations, and uh, keep keep charging. <laughs> and keep safe as well. That too, yeah, and, and, and keep in touch with us as well. Absolutely. Um, We'd love to have you write for us again. Thank you very much. Just another example of how victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. <laughs>